man. So you're just getting, the, uh, hopefully, the creme de la creme from my study. I like to bring it all in here, but I've got like 40 pages of notes, and I don't think I'll do that. So uh, we'll try and leave that, okay? The beginning of the end. You know, whenever you travel uh, faraway places, there's always the moment when you turn and begin your return trip, right? It's always that way. And uh, I always love to see new places. Uh, I think I got that desire from my father. Uh, we always had Life Magazine and National Geographic and uh, in our home as kids. And I used to look through that, and he always talked about traveling and going. My mother was quite the opposite. She never wanted to leave the four walls of the house. That's <laughs> to get her out of there is like extracting teeth out of her home. She just... Uh, doesn't want to go anywhere. Uh, but I sort of got that. It's not a wanderlust, but I enjoy seeing new places. And he encouraged me back when, and when I was, can you believe it? I, I never did that with my kids. But I was actually 16. I turned 17, and I, I, I had an opportunity to study in Brazil on the Amazon. Went to Rio by myself in Brasilia and on the Amazon and, and uh, fala portuguese, trying to learn Portuguese, you know. <laughs> And I go, that was all because of my dad. It wasn't my mother. Oh, Terry, you can't leave me, you know, this kind of thing. And, uh, but no matter where I've gone, and the Lord has allowed me to see a number of places in the sites and the people, but at some point I've often thought about uh, Dorothy, right, in The Wizard of Oz, as she would repeat, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. You, everyone know that? Everyone know that? No place like home. Faith and I even sensed that when we... Well, and, and no matter how long it is, if it's this long or that long, a week or two or three or a month or whatever, there's a point where the last days, you're, mm, I got to get home. I got to get home. Got to get home. No place like home. Well, uh, Dr. Luke in his Gospel of Certainty, remember that's how he began this. These things are written that you might be certain. That's the Gospel of Certainty. He has spent nine chapters, and we've just now going to complete them today, covering the first 32 years, and even prior to that, because you have the Annunciation, the Mary, you're going to have a child, uh, of Jesus' life. So these nine chapters, really, by God's direction leading Luke's life, have unfolded Jesus' life on earth in his humility, and now a pivot happens. The, verse 951, I called your attention to it in earlier weeks, Jesus now begins to unfold his return trip. His return trip. It's not a one-way journey. It's a return now. And the trip is, uh, this trip is going to go to Jerusalem, to the cross, going to go through the empty tomb, and he's going to ascend to glory. It's like uh, when you travel, you know, anymore, it's tough to get long distance without changing planes, although it's nice, isn't it? When you can go, Faithy's going to go down and uh, take care of, Faith. Sarah's going to have a baby, Lord willing, within two weeks, and uh, the next Sunday afternoon, Faith's going to go down, and, and uh, she said, Sarah, you know, let, get me a, one, a ticket without changing planes. I don't want to go through Charlotte or anywhere else. And so she was able to find from Baltimore to... Jacksonville, and then they'll pick her up down there because they're just north into Georgia, one-way thing. Jesus is gonna, going to, his return trip is going to go now. He, he's going to go to Jerusalem, and that means the cross, that means the tomb, the empty tomb, and then finally 
finally, home. No place like home. Well, in our text, and it's verses 51 through 62, as it completes chapter 9, there are two events here reminding us that following Jesus is costly. In a word, it's going to cost you everything you have. Now, this is going to be a little different message than, than maybe you saw the track, maybe you were saved by the track. You know, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, there's a sense where that's true, but there's another sense where that is not the complete message. That is not it. And this is a strong statement against easy believism, meaning scratch your head and you're in. Raise your hand and you're in. The feel-good Jesus is not it. And it didn't happen in his life, did it? Now why should we even think that it should be in those that would follow him? We have Americanized the church in our prosperity and in our ease, warm beds and warm waters and safe places. We live like few people do in the whole world and in human history. I mean, it's, uh, it's a, a bloody uh, flow that has followed the church for the century. We just think, oh, isn't it just wonderful, you know? And how lousy that and, and pathetic and turn that off, that junk on your TV that God wants you healthy and wealthy. He certainly wants you wise in the Scripture. Well, that's a bunch of garbage. In fact, we're going to discover here, Jesus essentially is going to say to those would-be followers of him, you, you can't do it. Just stay home. He, he's going to dissuade people from following him. Now imagine that in certain evangelistic circles or calls to Jesus. Just don't, don't any, you can't do it. You've not counted the cost, just stay home, go home, go bury the dead. It's a strong message. It, you know, it's caused me to reevaluate in my own heart. So is, is everything that I am, my time, my talent, and any monies or assets, God, are they really his? Or are I just sort of playing at it? You know, sort of like, hey, I got, I got my eternal life insurance. If I get hit by a bus tomorrow, I'm in heaven. But really, I'm playing at it. And I can't answer it for you. I mean, it'd be great if everyone's hair turned like chartreuse, if you were in, and, and following hard. They go, you're in, you're in, you're in. You need to repent. You need to get where you need to be. You're not, you know, it'd be easy like that, but I can't. So these are things that you and I have to take to our own heart and say, Lord, examine my heart. I, this, I, I may have been kidding myself. This, these, are, these are deep and, and probing things that we're going to look at here. Two events reminding us that following Jesus is costly. It may involve danger, denials, and even death. Jesus warned that the true cost of discipleship in advance, and he never hid it. It costs everything. And, and, and he didn't sneak up. He didn't say, come to me and follow, and then kind of let them in on it as they went. He said, this is incredibly costly. He told them at the get-go, again, very uh, unlike a lot of invitations to come to Christ. You know, beg people to come down. Well, there's a sense where we want people to be saved. We do. If you don't have a heart for lost people, you better examine your heart. You're probably lost. We yearn for that. I pray for that. Faith and I work for that. To make disciples. Now, what is a disciple? Let me, let me clarify that. A, a disciple is simply one who's a true Christian. 
It's not some sort of upper class. They're a disciple. I'm a Christian, but I'm not really a follower. No. Make disciples a learner. Methetes is a learner, a disciple, a follower of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. So it's not a super class of pastors and missionaries and Bible teachers and all that kind of thing. No, it's all of us. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a disciple. And therefore his words really drive deep into my heart and they ought to into yours as well. Two events. First event, uh, Jesus was rejected in the Samaritan village. We're going to see in verse 51 to 56, his reaction is a very instructive for us as we face opposition in life, and we will if we live for Jesus. Let's look at uh, the text and read it. Uh, chapter 9, verse 51, and here's the whole pivot. Circle this verse because now this begins the return trip home to heaven, going through with stops in Jerusalem, Mount Calvary, the empty tomb, and then up. That's from the Mount of Olives. Verse 51, And when the days drew near for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up, that's the ascension, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went in and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John, they were brothers, remember, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume him? But he turned and rebuked the two, the two men. And they went on to another village. Well, here's the first event. Jesus is rejected as now as he's leaving Galilee. Not going to go around like a lot of the pilgrims did. He's going to go right through Samaria as he takes his time in the last year of life. This is his last year he's going to live as he moves toward Jerusalem and uh, preaching and teaching and visiting and, and sharing the gospel. Uh, he is going to face opposition. Well, remember, today, and, and a little, little bit of a summary here, is not the judgment day. Today is not the judgment day. It's a day of hope and mercy. The doorway to heaven is still open, to, even today. Someday it'll be closed. It'll be closed. You ever go somewhere and uh, uh, they fill the occupancy and we can't take any more and they slam the door in your face. Full. Go to a good restaurant. You're dying to eat, right? Didn't make a reservation. Hoping this can't help you. Out, you have to wait outside. It's full, right? Full. The door, it's doors closed in your face. One thing, if it's a entertainment thing or a dinner thing, it's quite another thing. It's heaven. Today, the day is open. The door is open. You know, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord should be saved. It's an open door. It's an open door. Someday it won't be. It'll be too late. What terrible word. Too late. Too late. It's open here. And that's. We're going to see that. Well, the journey begins home, eh? One more year. Jesus is going to accomplish his Father's will for him. He's going to do every bit of it, too. Luke tells us the days drew near for him to be taken up. Verse 50, that's that he's going to go home. And from here to the end of Luke, Jesus is finishing his work. And that's going to take place, as you know, in the city of Jerusalem, that holy city. They killed the prophets, stoned them. That holy city. 
He's going to suffer for us as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That glorious Isaiah 53. You should know that backwards and forwards. I can't hardly even mention it without thinking of Handel's great Messiah in the King James Version. But the, the words rattle around in my heart and on my, in, in my mind of the Lamb of God, Isaiah 53. Yet Jesus has set his face toward it without wavering. You know, you never see the Lord going like, oh, it's going to be dangerous up there. I'm not sure about this, right? He was a man's man in every sense of the word. Like a great conquering general, he set his face toward it, never wavered. And in that, he sets an example of a true follower of Jesus. He's the God-man. He's in his humiliation. We know that, Philippians 2. Sometimes we excuse Jesus. Well, he's like us. He's the God, but different from us. He could do it. I can't. We excuse ourselves. We shouldn't. That's sinful. He set his face like a general going to conquer the great enemy. And that's what we need to do as we follow him. The cross before us and the world behind us. He never wavered, even though he knew. We don't know how much he knew in his humiliation. But he knew in general he was going to die there. He knew the scriptures. The particulars we don't know in his humiliation, being God and man in his humanity, that great mystery of godliness. But he had headed toward that place without wavering to do his Father's will. And you know what? He would never look back. And so he's going to say to us, don't ever look back as disciples. Don't look back. He pointed out at one point the danger of Lot's wife, remember? He just simply said, remember Lot's wife? What about that? She looked back. She looked back at Sodom and Gomorrah. And she turned to a pillar of salt. Don't look back. How about the sinfulness of the children of Israel? God delivers them mightily from the hands of the Egyptians. They cross the Red Sea. They get across it. And they start bellyaching and murmuring. Why? Looking back. We like garlic. We like the leeks. of it. Why didn't you leave us back there? Be careful about that. A disciple of Jesus never looks back. It's forward, like our Lord Jesus. Wow. Strong stuff. Not for the weak. Not for the unsaved, either. Well, B, as he walked towards Jerusalem... He sent an advanced team to get arrangements ready for him, for those uh, who were with him in the Samaritan vi uh, village. Jesus was going to visit that village. What a great day. What a great day. Now, there's an entourage of people that were fine, the disciples and, and some others. We're going to hear about 70 others. And then the, the ladies that ministered with their need, probably cooking and caring and cleaning, all that kind of stuff. And so it was a big group. They didn't have Hampton Inns. Say 1-800-Hampton, I'll make a reservation there. And that Samaritan didn't happen, right? No holiday inns, no none of that stuff, none of it. And so it would be a burden to a town. And they were given in the ancient Near East to hospitality, it was an unpardonable sin if you didn't welcome people in and care for them and even protect them and give your own life and give it. I mean, that's something in the West we don't really have a grip on, but it meant everything. I mean, you see that even in the 23rd Psalm where, where uh, the, the, the shepherd 
Uh, he prepares a table before me in the presence of mine, caring for and providing and even protecting even the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans are, are, uh, are there a, a mongrel group, if you will. Uh, the Assyrians came in and deported most of the Israelites. That's how they did that. What a, what a thing to come into a conquered country and carry out the very best of the people and repopulate them, scatter them somewhere else. Leave the sick and the maimed and the almost worthless, the aged, if you will, leave them there. And then you bring in a whole horde of other people, foreigners, and let the years pass and they enter, enter a, a breed and, a, and produce a group that's nothing like it was. At least you don't have that, that nationality rising up and rebelling against it. It was a way of breaking the back of, of, uh, of enemies, and they did that. And that's what the Samaritans were. Uh, you remember in John 4, Mark preached a number of weeks ago on uh, the discussion with the woman at the well. I mean, do the Samaritans worship over here? Uh, you worship you Jews in Jerusalem, and there was a strong conflict and disagreement between the Jews and the Samaritans. There was no love lost at all. And so uh, Jesus was coming. He was going to visit. What a great day that would be. Have you ever had anyone wonderful, famous, come visit your home. I remember next uh, we had one day Henry P. Smith III, I don't know how you remember, but he was a United States congressman and um, uh, stayed with the family. Uh, no, actually he was our next door neighbor. And uh, he lived there in North Tonawanda, New York, and uh, uh, who was that? Gerald Ford, I knew it, I knew, I knew it. Jerry, Jerry Ford, Gerald Ford, before he was uh, president, after Nixon uh, resigned, he came and stayed overnight. And the whole neighborhood was all excited, you know, like, wow, this is, man, we're something. I remember also when John F. Kennedy was uh, running for presidency in, uh, uh, in 1960. That dates me a little bit. But as a little kid, our dad took, my dad took us over, and, and there he went, an open car and driving by, and I was maybe 200 yards away and on his shoulders, and I think I saw him. I'm not sure. <laughs> but the day yeah, JFK visited uh, our city, it was, you know, we felt like, wow, what a day. How about the day when the Lord Jesus Christ would come to visit? What a great day that was. Man, God made flesh going to visit our humble little town. Man, wow, what a day. Well, what happened, though? The people refused to have him. They rejected him. Ethnic hatred. Because he was headed toward Jerusalem, the Samaritans said, no room in the inn, so to speak. And they refused to have him stay there. Wow. How'd you like to be the, the town that refused to have God visit? Wow. There are a lot of people in towns that want to be remembered for certain things, right? <laughs> High school champions, you know, and they put the year, you know, like four or five of them. Steelton's like that with their, amen, JT? I think even amen there. Champions, state champions. Or Camp Hills, state champions. Sometimes I've seen the sign, right? And you, you're always looking for like a lot of years there. I'd like to be known as the town. Uh, we, we, we refuse to have God visit. Wow, man. You know, the same thing is true in another sense. When, when God comes knocking on the hearts and doors of people's lives, 
and they really seriously consider the claims of the gospel, but uh, mm, no room. They take a look, and they get out quick, and they don't dare come near the cross or Christ or any more. Boy, that was uncomfortable. Whoa, I don't want that. I love my sin too much. I won't have them. And in a small way, it reflects that, doesn't it? I see it that way. Wow. Well, see, doing the Father's will often found Jesus being rejected. This was not a new theme for him. And in fact, you're going to see the closer that he gets to Jerusalem, the closer he gets to the cross, the intensity of the rejection notches up. It's like a pressure cooker. Satan and, and his forces are resisting him. And uh, you see that all around. Rejection was a pattern of the life of the Lord Jesus. He's rejected in his, home, his birthplace, no room in the inn. He's rejected in his hometown of Nazareth in Luke 4. They're going to stone him, throw him off the cliff. He's rejected uh, in Samaria. We see that here. He's rejected by the religious leaders through the, uh, through the days. And then finally in Jerusalem, the high priest, Pilate, and all the people in that day that shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Rejected! He was indeed the, the despised and rejected one, the man of sorrows, from Isaiah 53.3. Wow. And yet his reaction to that rejection is so instructive for us as, as God has saved us and made us his disciple. How do we respond? You know, do we punch people out? Do we, uh, we tell them off? We write them nasty letters? We just ignore them? I mean, what do we do? What, how do we respond? Well, we see here in our text, verses 54 through 56, the wrong response, burn them up. <laughs> and we, you may feel like that. Just, just torch them, Lord. Just torch them. I, th I think uh, James and, and John, these brothers, you know, they, they have things that commend them here. They were certainly jealous for the Lord. They were defending him. They were loyal. They were zealous. You know, good things. But, uh, uh, and, and perhaps they were thinking of Elijah. Remember Elijah and Mount Carmel? You know, send fire, Lord, and burn up the, uh, the sacrifice on the altar. God's certainly able to do that, and they knew that. Shall we call down fire? You know, let's torch these guys that are, are doing that. I'm reminded zeal is not enough, is it? And I failed at this, and I, I failed at it uh, more earlier in my walk as a, a disciple of Jesus. You know, I don't tell people anymore, turn or burn, you know, turn or burn. I've discovered that's probably not the best way to embrace people with their need of Christ um, or, or a lot of other ways. A zeal's not enough. It's possible for you and I to have zeal for Jesus and yet exhibit it in a very unholy and unchristian way. We need more than good intentions. You know, we do. I've been utterly embarrassed to go through parts of Israel and Egypt and the Middle East and, and uh, talking to non-Christians that will say, 
They'll, they'll bring up the, the crusades to me. Oh, the crusades. Some of you, remember, do you remember that from your studies? And they still study history in school today. You remember that? What a terrible blight upon the church. I felt uh, there uh, uh, that, at, at, particularly at Caesarea, I've looked at the, the Christian ruins there, so-called, and, and all that they, I was embarrassed for the church that they took the sword and the shield and they went and killed people uh, in the Middle East. Zealous for the Lord, I'm not sure the motives, but what a terrible blight upon the church. You know, the various, and then the children could say, oh, how bad is that? They sent the kids out. Terrible thing. And uh, should never, never have happened. Burn them up, no way. No way. God wants us to have more than good intentions, but hearts that are filled with compassion, like Jesus had. Jesus could have burned up the whole place. We need to have wisdom. We need to be wise as serpents. Innocent as dove, but wise as serpents. And sometimes it's really naughty. We don't know how to respond. And and, and, and uh, in our zeal, uh, and, and just pray, God, give me wisdom on how to respond to that guy or that gal or my family or my boss or my neighbor. Uh, Jesus, uh, number two, rebukes the two disciples, James, telling them that uh, the day of mercy, that today is the day of mercy, not the day of judgment. 55 and 56. He turns and rebukes them. Epitomea, he, he's going to honor them. You know, that's what the word means. Epitomea in Greek, it means you honor somebody when you confront them and say, hey, brother, that's, this isn't right. You're actually honoring them rather than going around their back or gossiping or something. You, you, you confront them in compassion and love and say, you know, that, uh, you're, you're, you're not thinking right. You know, we all need that. Iron sharpens iron. And he, he rebukes James and John. You know, again, they're mishandling of people. They did it just prior. Remember that? They're still not quite there, are they? Nor are we. And, uh, and so today is a day of mercy. Judgment will come. There is a day of judgment. All of us will give an account. And it does reflect decisions we make today, but it's not today. Today is not the judgment day. And so Jesus, what? He turns Away. That's what the, it ends up, this little couplet says, verse 56, and they went on to a, another vi- village. What a sad day for that village. They lost the opportunity. Wow. Well, what's the rest of the story? I'm sorry we don't hear that anymore on the radio with, uh, what was his name he died? Harvey, yeah, Paul Harvey. Lived a long time. The rest of the story, can I tell you the rest of the story? God changed the heart of John. James was going to get killed. Herod killed him. But John, uh, here, here's the story. The fighter, Lord, burn him up. The fighter became the lover. Do you know that John became the, uh, the apostle of love? And his whole ministry was a, a ministry of agape, of love. Is that amazing? You know, there's hope for all of us. That's what God is doing. You're, you're being changed. If you know Jesus and you're a follower, you're not what you were. He's changing you. Isn't that great? 
And sometimes it's two steps forward, one back, but he, the direction is forward. He's changing you. He's giving you the love of God in your heart so that you're not walking around blasting fire at people, you know, that treat you poorly or reject you. For there is a cost in identifying with Jesus. And uh, John became the lover. In fact, uh, I have that on your sheet, Acts 8. John later visited Samaria with Peter, and he proclaimed the gospel to them. Well, I just want you to look at Acts 8. Look at verse 25. We don't know if he went back to the same town, but in my sanctified imagination, I really believe he did. You know, the apostles were hearing something strange is going on uh, with the church and believers there in Samaria, and so they sent Peter and in verse 14, Peter and John to check it out from Jerusalem. And then they went and checked out. Look at verse 25. And now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. That's Peter and John. This is the John we're talking about in our text. Preaching the gospel to, to many villages of the Samaritans. How about that? The gospel, the fighter became the lover, John. And that's what he's doing in your life and indeed mine. You see, Jesus rejected any form of violence, and so should we. Well, that's the first event, the rejection, uh, reminding us that following Jesus is costly. For it may involve danger, denial, and even death. The second event, Jesus in these few verses now warns us that following him demands abandoning everything. Now he's walking along, he's headed to Jerusalem, let's read verse 57. And as they were going <clears throat> along the road, someone, <clears throat> someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. <clears throat> and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now here's the second would-be disciple. And the second, another said, follow me. Jesus said to him, follow me. And the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And here's the third would-be disciple. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. Let me first say farewell to those at my house. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, we see the first and the third speak to the Lord first. The second would-be disciple. The Lord addresses him, and we discover here that it is a warning. The focus is not so much on what the men say, but on what Jesus says. And we don't even know how these three ultimately responded. We're not told. But the Spirit of God wants us to take to heart this cost of discipleship found in the very words of our Lord Jesus here. Since Jesus abandoned all to save us from our sins, to follow him as a Christian means that you're a disciple, means that we are to do likewise. And these three would-be disciples here in our passage are addressed by him in a warning that total Commitment is required. And that you and I are to count the cost before we scratch our head, pray a prayer, walk an aisle, you know, say you're in 
Count the cost. And, you know, this may hit home, and some of you say, like, you know, I, I wonder if I really am saved. You know, I realize that. that uh, and it's something I can't answer. I can't. I never give anyone assurance. It's the Spirit of God that gives assurance that you're saved. I know a lot of times people, personal workers will say, oh, you prayed to prayer, you're in, you're going to get doubt, Satan will do that, you're in. You can't say that. You can never give people assurance of that. You don't know how that seed of the gospel is going to fall on that soil. It may germinate immediately. It may give, but no fruit, no fruit. You remember that from Matthew 13. So be careful about that. Take these things to heart. Maybe you need to say this afternoon sometimes, Lord, examine my heart. I, I don't know where I've been, but I thought I was in, but I, I guess, and I'm not playing to any of your fears or timidity. I just want us all to be in heaven together and to serve the Lord until that time. And I just know that, that sometimes we kid ourselves and tea and we, we play at it. We play at it in this easy life called the American living in the American church. Well, let's just look at the three. Uh, the first uh, man, uh, A, uh, in essence, it's leave all. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, Jesus warns you leave all security behind. All security. And we trust in him and we walk by faith. Jesus uh, is teaching in A, teaches we must be willing to give up everything, even the comforts of home. There's no place like home, even the comforts of home. Now, most of us, God will not uh, tap us on the shoulder and, and ask us to do that, but some of us will. Some of us will. I hope and the journey begins. Most of us, but we must be willing, the key word, willing to give up, to be a follower. Follower is the key word in this passage. It occurs three times, to be a follower. Jesus did this for us, did he not? When we do, we'll discover, here it is, from Psalm 90, verse 1, we'll discover that God is our home. We dwell in Him, so we're always at home. God made us for Himself. So you need not worry. Wherever you are, far from where you grew up or far from your family, if you love Him and know Him, you're always at home in God. God made you for Himself. He made me for Him. And so we're always at home in Him. Always. And God will give you grace to that way. Well, number one, here we see that to be a disciple of Jesus, then, is not an emotional, fly-by-night uh, decision, uh, and, and a fair-type thing, where we just, uh, it, it is a decision, sure, but we must count the cost. Sit down and get out your piece of paper and make your list and calculate. Are you willing to surrender everything? Your time. Your, that means your calendar. Is it Jesus? Now, we have to work, Right? Well, we work for the Lord, whatever we do. It puts food on the table, provides for our loved ones. We can be a blessing to those less fortunate. It allows us opportunity to support the Lord's work with the gifts and talents he's given us. You know, we do these things so that we can serve the Lord with a variety of talents and gifts that he's given to us. Right? And that's, that's what he's calling for here. And so we count the cost of that. Our time... Our talents, our gifts, and our abilities, our checkbook, it's his money. It's not yours. 
what's it mean, Federal Reserve note anyway? Have you been following the papers at all? The whole thing could tank in a moment. I remember that with uh, re reading the, Dr. Bonhoeffer's uh, the biography. His father, uh, he grew up during those days in the 20s and 30s in Germany, and they had horrendous economic conditions. And his dad was a brilliant uh, surgeon and professor at the University of Berlin. And Bonhart Dietrich uh, tells a story about the day when his father's <clears throat> annu annuity finally matured. He'd been paying on it 20 years. And it came, and he got his check. And the inflation was so bad, they could only buy a loaf of bread with what he had been investing for 20 years. You need a bushel basket full of money, paper money. I mean, if that doesn't wake you up, to, we, we need to use what we have now for the work of the ministry and, 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 and be willing to deny ourselves, not only in our building offering, and I hope that you take that right to heart, but in all areas of ministry and in giving and live to give. That's the happiest people I know. And those that wrap their hand, arms around every, it's mine, it's mine, are the most unhappy people. Live to give. Your time, your talents, your treasury, your comfort. Our home is in God itself. Uh, number two, it requires the thoughtful conviction that Jesus is the number one priority in life. You see, that's why this is a tough message. It's not just playing at it. I mean, it's almost fanatical, but some of you are like that with the Steelers, right? And the Eagles and the Redskins. You are. You're half crazy. I've seen you. You wear that stuff to the church <laughs> in Ohio State, right, Dan? Not even an amen. <laughs> or Penn State. Any? Nobody. Everybody's quiet. Amen for the Bills, and I'll give it. <laughs> but, <laughs> Well, that's what he's saying. Number one priority to leave security. But look at the second man. What do we learn then? It teaches us that even family obligations do not come before following him. And this, uh, the second man is, is, is attempting to negotiate. Do you see that? The terms of his discipleship. He's trying to negotiate. We, we do that, don't we? I hope the uh, NFL players and owners negotiate, get that done. I hope I pray with Washington. They get that budget deal done. Oh, God, help those. What a naughty thing. That, get that done. But I'm reminded, Jesus tells us, in the, you don't negotiate the terms of discipleship. Let me go and bury my dead father. Now, listen, in a word, he's not dead. No, he's not dead. If he were dead, in, in that day, the Jews, you died, you were buried that day. Did you know that? There were some of the old dunkards in our town of Indiana, uh, and I used to go right by their their uh, their church and their cemetery and uh, I saw it all the time. They died. They buried them within 24 hours. And the, and then in, in in Israel in that day, you stayed home with your family for a month. It was a mourning time. So he's not standing there with Jesus if his dad is dead. But he meant care care for my father. Can I Lord? Let me negotiate. Let me care for my father in his waning years. I really think that's what's going on here. And, uh, and, and then I'll come. Now listen, here's the point. Family is very, very, very important. We're to honor our, our mother and our father. Even in my prayer time, I still thank the Lord and honor my mom and dad. My mom is still living. 
Uh, but I, I, Lord, thank you. I, I, honor means, to me, it means to prize them highly. And we're always to do that and have that attitude with that. And, and in our junior years, honor and obey. That's the verse all parents teach their kids. Children, obey. What's God's will? Obey your parents. That's God's will. Next question, you know. <laughs> but once we reach our adult years, we're nev- we never stop honoring. And one of the ways we honor our parents is to care for them in their declining years. It's a tremendous testimony. I see the way Brenda cares for her daddy who's dying. You know, what a, what a testimony that is. And, and some of the others, the way that you care for loved ones. Uh, it's a, a tremendous testimony. It's so un, uh, uh, unlike a lot of our culture. Uh, but even that, even, even, even that, you see, as high as family is, and it is, and it ought to be, there's something higher. And that is being a disciple that follows with the first priority of following Jesus. Now, I don't lift myself up at all because God, I'm still a construction project still being built. But uh, there was a point in time in my life when God turned us from business. After college, Faith and I were married. Then we worked in my dad's firm in Buffalo, New York for a couple of years did youth work gratis. Um, my father wanted to give me the business and uh, offer to go down to the attorney, sign it all over. He was unsaved. He was heartbroken when I said that we're going to leave to go train in seminary to be a pastor. And my father used these words. He said, family should not do that. Family should stay close. And with tears in my eyes, I had to say, Dad, I love you. But God has put this in our heart, and we must go. Now, only God can do that. And it wasn't me. No, it wasn't me. It was God who did that. And if, if God hadn't done that in our life, we wouldn't be standing right here now. And, and, and it's just not pastors. It's just not missionaries. It's any follower of Jesus being willing, you see. And it's a, it's a heartache for me. My mother's aging now. I need to go up and see her in a couple of weeks. She's getting up there. She was down, visited. She's very unstable walking. I had to hold on to her. And uh, it's a burden to me. Uh, you know, Jim, you and Susan, caring for your mama. And, you know, what a testimony that was. And in her declining years, and uh, I know your sister helped Susan down there, and you split back and forth, and here we're far away. I would be one right down the street. I'd be over at my mother taking care of painting and caring for that, but God didn't have that for me. He's, uh, thankfully, there are other brothers and sisters in the family that live around the corner that care for her. And I'm grateful for that, really. We pray for that because I can't be there. We can't be there. God, why? And it's a sacrifice that, that we've made, and we're glad to do it, and God has filled our heart and joy to do it. And he cares for her in his own way. I will tell you this. I showed her the property when uh, she was here. We went out there. She was very unsteady walking around the back there of the house and came up to the cornfields, and she's real well. She's shrinking. <laughs> Come here, Mom. She's walking real, real. And she looked at the neighborhoods around. She looked at there. There are housing development, and she's telling me with her point of Now, you need to go to every one of those doors and invite them to church. I'm going, Yes, mother. <laughs> and so she has a part in it, doesn't she? And, and the Lord is simply saying, uh, I'm first. 
as high and sacred as family is, there's a higher calling. And, and the third one, uh, oh, let me just say number three under, under B, the, it, it's not always something sinful, but something good that can hinder us from doing God's word. Be, be careful about that. Something good like caring for family. But if you make family an idol and put them number one, that's the problem. The third, and C is, uh, the third man, uh, and the dialogue here teaches us that now is the time to urgently follow him without delay. Don't even go home. Don't even do that. What, what's that mean? Can they say goodbye? No, the point is, now. Don't delay. Don't look back. Don't second guess in your decision to follow Jesus, that's the point of 61 uh, and 62. And no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, you know, uh, is worthy, uh, is fit for the kingdom of God. It's always forward, all the way that Jesus leads us forward. 1 Kings 19, you may want to look at that later, 19 to 21. Elisha, when, the day when Elijah came by, and Elisha was quite a wealthy man, and Elijah, the great prophet, taps him on the shoulder, invites him to join him in his ministry, and Elisha's out there, uh, he's plowing with these, these oxen, and uh, he burns the plow, and he slaughters the oxen, and you know what? There was no going back. No going back. Reminds me when you read of some of the great explorers. How about some of those Spanish conquistadors? When they came to the New World, what did they do? That's right. They pull up. Now imagine you're standing on the shore, right? And they completely destroy the ship. Wow. That, that's going to be a test of your measure of commitment, right? No going back. Now is the time. Now. Wow. Count the cost. Wow. Lessons for a life. And then I've got an illustration and then a closing song. Lesson number one, handle any rejection you receive as a Christian from family, unkind words and actions, from bosses, from schoolmates, from those that you play with, neighborhood. Handle it with love and kindness. Don't return an ill word for an ill word. Don't return a shot for a shot, right? Count it a privilege that you should so suffer for Jesus. That's what the disciples did. You read it. They counted it themselves privileged to suffer for Jesus when they were beat there in the early chapters of Acts. Number two, be glad that if you're a believer, that God is changing you. You know, maybe there's a day when you would have punched somebody out. You're like, I can't believe it. I actually love the guy. <laughs> That's good. That's a good sign. That's a telltale sign that uh, you're growing in grace. Praise the Lord for it. The, the fighter became the lover. God is changing you. And let me ask you, let me just insert a couple of questions here that you can ask yourself whether you're in fact being changed and therefore a follower of Jesus. Number one, do you yearn to read God's Word and pray every day? Now, that's a problem if you don't. God's people yearn to want to grow in that relationship. It's a relationship. 
with him. Do you yearn to that? Number two, do you desire to worship with God's people each week? Or do you get, you know, some other little activity or a pimple on your chin and, oh, I guess I won't go today or some other reason? That's a problem. That may indicate that you are not saved. It ought to be your heart's desire. I want to gather with God's people and worship. I want to learn God's word. I want to be trained up for my ministry as I leave. Number three, does your life reflect your love for Jesus to those that you live with? Or you just look like you've been sucking on lemons, complaining and griping, nothing is ever good enough. How about those that work with you? What would they say? They may not understand your difference, but do they see the light of Jesus? And they should. They should, or it's a problem. If you're a chameleon, you may be deceiving yourself, blending in as... Number four, would your checkbook show your love for Christ? I've often said that. You're, it's not your hymn book. You can sing great songs of the faith, and we love to do that. But your checkbook is a greater, greater indicator of your real love for Christ. It's true in my own life. So why should it be true in your life? It is time, talent, and treasury. Number five, would your daily calendar show your love for Christ by what you do with your time? You know, Billy Graham was right. He said, now I'm at the end of my life. I realize the greatest thing that God gives is time. And now I'm almost all out. That's right. Time. Time. You make time to to make friends and enjoy unsaved people. We don't have a heavy church calendar that would crowd that out. You need to make time for that. We love to be together in a holy huddle, don't we? And I enjoy that. But God made us to scatter. And it's okay to do that. And I want you to do that. And that's what God wants you to do. Does your calendar reflect in a week's time that you're making time to, to reach out and to love people, to get involved in community things? Kids need help with homework. Prisoners need help coming out of the system there. Uh, that Our schools need help. Community governance needs help. All sorts of things. We can make contact in so many areas, your neighborhoods, and so on. Number, number three. Number three. You must seriously count the cost of being a Christian. It costs, it'll cost you everything you have. But then it's all his anyway, isn't it? It's all his anyway. It's a myth when you say, I own it. You don't own anything. You don't. Not a single thing. Not your next heartbeat. And that's reality. It's all his. We're simply managers of time, talents, and treasury. And one day we'll lay our tools down and we'll never pick them up again here. And our hearts will stop and our checkbooks will be emptied and scattered. All of that. It's his. It's his right now. Number four. Newsflash, follow is the key word here, and if you're not following, you're probably not saved. Hmm. Now let the Lord probe your own heart on that, but it's true. Number five, don't delay one more day, that urgency. Can't I go home and say goodbye? The Lord simply to make the case that with urgency, we need to be disciples today is a day for you to be saved. Oh, today, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. 
There's a story told about uh, a man's life that's worthy of me giving a little bit of sense. I'd like you to be aware of this man. His life is so motivational for us. Uh, Many of you are familiar, particularly the ladies, maybe with uh, Borden, Borden Foods. You know, the uh, Borden food, uh, that came out of the family, the Bordens. And about 100 years ago, uh, there was a man, uh, William Borden, graduated from a uh, high school in Chicago. He was heir to the Borden family fortune, and he was already wealthy. Let me read this if you'll follow along and stay with me here. For his high school graduation present, how about this? His parents gave the 16-year-old Borden a trip around the world. And as a young man, he traveled through Asia, Middle East, Europe. He felt the growing burden of the world's hurting people. And finally, Bill Borden wrote home about his desire to be a missionary. One friend expressed disbelief that Bill was, quote, throwing himself away. In response, Borden wrote two words in the back of his Bible. No reserves were the two words. No reserves. Even though young Borden was wealthy, he arrived at the campus of Yale University in 1905 trying to look like just one more freshman. Very quickly, however, Borden's classmates noticed something unusual about him. And it wasn't that he had lots of money. One of them wrote, he came to the college far ahead spiritually than any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Jesus, and he had really done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock, just because of this settled purpose and consecration. During his college years, Bill Borden made an entry in his personal journal that defined Uh, that defined what his classmates were seeing in him. And that entry said simply this, and I quote, Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Borden's first disappointment at Yale came when the university president spoke in a convocation about the student's need to have, quote, have a fixed purpose in life. After that speech, Bill Borden wrote, he neglected to say what our purpose should be and where we should get the ability to persevere and the strength to resist temptations. Surveying the Yale faculty and much of the student body, Borden lamented what he saw as the end result of an empty humanistic philosophy, moral weakness, and sin-ruined lives. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started something that would transform campus life. One of his friends described how it began. He quotes, It was well on the first term when Bill and I began to pray together in the morning before breakfast. I cannot say positively whose suggestion it was, but I feel sure it must have originated with Bill. We had been meeting only a short time when a third student joined us in our prayer time and soon a fourth. The time was spent in prayer. After a brief reading of Scripture, Bill's handling of Scripture was helpful. He would read to us from the Bible, show us something that God had promised, and then proceed to to claim the promise with assurance. Borden's small morning prayer group on campus gave birth to a movement that soon spread across the entire campus at Yale. 
And by the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. And by the time Bill Borden was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. Bill Borden made it his habit to seek out the most incorrigible students to try to bring them to salvation. In his sophomore year, uh, we organized, one man wrote, Bible study groups and divided up the class of 300 or more, and each man interested taking a certain number so that all might, if possible, be reached. The names were gone over one by one, and the question asked, who will take this person? And when it came to someone thought to be too hard for the proposition, there, was, there would be an ominous pause. Nobody wanted the responsibility. Then Bill's voice would be heard, quote, put him down to me. Borden's outreach ministry was not confined to the Yale campus. He cared about widows and orphans and the disabled. He rescued drunks from the streets of New Haven to try to rehabilitate them. He founded the Yale Hope Mission. One of Bill's friends wrote that he might uh, often be found in the lower parts of the city at night, on the street, in cheap lodging house, or some restaurant to which he had taken a poor hungry guy to feed him, seeking to lead that man to Christ. Warden's missionary call narrowed to the Muslim Kansu people in China. Once he fixed his eyes on that goal, Borden never wavered, never. He also challenged his classmates to consider missionary service. One of them said of him, he certainly was one of the strongest characters I've ever known. And he put backbone in the rest of us at college. There was a real iron in him. I always felt he was other stuff martyrs were made of, heroic missionaries in more modern times. Although he was a millionaire, Bill seemed to realize that he must be about his father's business and not wasting time in the pursuit of amusement. Although Borden refused to join a fraternity, he did more with his classmates in the senior year than ever before. He presided over the huge student missionary conference at Yale, served as president of the Honor Society. And upon graduation from Yale, Borden turned down some high-paying job offers, and in his Bible he wrote two more words, no retreats. William Borden went on to do graduate work at Princeton. And when he finished his studies at Princeton, he sailed for China because he was hoping to work with Muslim. He stopped first in Egypt to study Arabic. And while he was there, he suffered spinal meningitis. And within a month, the 25-year-old William Borden was dead. And when the news of William Whiting Borden's death was cabled back to the United States. The story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. A wave of sorrow went through throughout the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but he gave away himself in a way so joyously and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice, wrote Mary Taylor in, one of, in her introduction to his bibli uh, biography. Was, was Bill Borden's untimely death a waste? Not in God's perspective. Prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in his Bible. And underneath the words, no reserves, and no retreat, he had written more recently, and no regrets. Bill Borden 
an example of a man that was willing to go and willing to serve. God doesn't call all of us to go, but he calls all of us to be willing and to serve as disciples of Jesus. I'd like us to stand, and I've asked Dave to put on the board the closing song, I've decided to follow Jesus. I'd like to urge you to sing this a cappella with me. Don't sing it if you don't mean it. Well, let's sing it together, shall we? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back, no turning back. Please close your eyes. Uh, let me read the third. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Shall we sing the last stanza, The World Behind Me? Shall we sing? The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. Lord, you've heard the words from our lips, and may it reflect in ever-increasing ways the truth and reality of our lives as we give to you again, as we follow you, our time, our talents and gifts, our treasuries, our all. We love you so much. What a privilege to serve you and to follow you. Help us, Lord, all the way, all the way. Dismiss us with your blessing. Make us a blessing to all that we should meet. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.